Section 2 of Pascendi Dominici Gregis On the Errors of the Modernists by Pope St. Pius X Translated by Thomas E. Judge This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Encyclical Part 2 The Church A wider field for comment is opened when you come to treat of the vagaries devised by the modernist school concerning the church you must start with the supposition that the church has its birth in a double need the need of the individual believer especially if he has had some original and special experience to communicate his faith to others and the need of the mass when the faith has become common to many to form itself into a society and to guard increase and propagate the common good what then is the church it is the product of the collective conscience that is to say of the society of individual consciences which by virtue of the principle of vital permanence all depend on one first believer who for catholics is christ now every society needs a directing authority to guide its members towards the common end to conserve prudently the elements of cohesion which in a religious society are doctrine and worship hence the triple authority in the catholic church disciplinary dogmatic liturgical the nature of this authority is to be gathered from its origin and its rights and duties from its nature in past times it was a common error that authority came to the church from without that is to say directly from god and then it was rightly held to be autocratic but this conception has now grown obsolete for in the same way as the church is a vital emanation of the collectivity of consciences so too authority emanates vitally from the church itself authority therefore like the church has its origin in the religious conscience and that being so is subject to it should it disown this dependence it becomes a tyranny for we are living in an age when the sense of liberty has reached its fullest development and when the public conscience has in the civil order introduced popular government now there are not two consciences in man any more than there are two lives it is for the ecclesiastical authority therefore to shape itself to democratic forms unless it wishes to provoke and foment an intestine conflict in the consciences of mankind the penalty of refusal is disaster for it is madness to think that the sentiment of liberty as it is now spread abroad can surrender were it forcibly confined and held in bonds terrible would be its outburst sweeping away at once both church and religion such is the situation for the modernists and their one great anxiety is in consequence to find a way of conciliation between the authority of the church and the liberty of believers the relations between church and state but it is not with its own members alone that the church must come to an amicable arrangement besides its relations with those within it it has others outside the church does not occupy the world all by itself 
there are other societies in the world with which it must necessarily have contact and relations the rights and duties of the church towards civil societies must therefore be determined and determined of course by its own nature as the modernists have already described it the rules to be applied in this matter are those which have been laid down for science and faith though in the latter case the question is one of objects while here we have one of ends in the same way then as faith and science are strangers to each other by reason of the diversity of their objects church and state are strangers by reason of the diversity of their ends that of the church being spiritual while that of the state is temporal formerly it was possible to subordinate the temporal to the spiritual and to speak of some questions as mixed allowing to the church the position of queen and mistress in all such because the church was then regarded as having been instituted immediately by god as the author of the supernatural order but this doctrine is today repudiated alike by philosophers and historians the state must therefore be separated from the church and the catholic from the citizen every catholic from the fact that he is also a citizen has the right and the duty to work for the common good in the way he thinks best without troubling himself about the authority of the church without paying any heed to its wishes its counsels its orders nay even in spite of its reprimands to trace out and prescribe for the citizen any line of conduct on any pretext whatsoever is to be guilty of an abuse of ecclesiastical authority against which one is bound to act with all one's might the principles from which these doctrines spring have been solemnly condemned by our predecessor pius the sixth in his constitution auctorum fidei the magisterium of the church but it is not enough for the modernist school that the state should be separated from the church for as faith is to be subordinated to science as far as phenomenal elements are concerned so too in temporal matters the church must be subject to the state they do not say this openly as yet but they are logically committed to it for given the principle that in temporal matters the state possesses absolute mastery it will follow that when the believer not fully satisfied with his merely internal acts of religion proceeds to external acts such for instance as the administration or reception of the sacraments these will fall under the control of the state what will then become of ecclesiastical authority which can only be exercised by external acts obviously it will be completely under the dominion of the state it is this inevitable consequence which impels many among liberal protestants to reject all external worship nay all external religious community and makes them advocate what they call individual religion if the modernists have not yet reached this point they do ask the church in the meanwhile to be good enough to follow spontaneously where they lead her and adapt herself to the civil forms in vogue such are their ideas about disciplinary authority but far more advanced and far more pernicious are their teachings on doctrinal and dogmatic authority this is their conception of the magisterium of the church no religious society they say 
can be a real unit unless the religious conscience of its members be one, and one also the formula which they adopt. But this double unity requires a kind of common mind, whose office is to find and determine the formula that corresponds best with the common conscience, and it must have, moreover, an authority sufficient to enable it to impose upon the community the formula which has been decided upon. From the combination, and, as it were, fusion of the common mind which draws up the formula, and the authority which imposes it, arises, according to the modernists, the notion of the ecclesiastical magisterium. And as this magisterium springs, in its last analysis, from the individual consciences, and possesses its mandate for their benefit, it follows that the ecclesiastical magisterium must be subordinate to them, and should, therefore, take democratic forms. To prevent individual consciences from revealing freely and openly the impulses they feel, to hinder criticism from imperiling dogmas towards their necessary evolutions, this is not a legitimate use, but an abuse of a power given for the public utility. So, too, a due method and measure must be observed in the exercise of authority. To condemn and proscribe a work, without the knowledge of the author, without hearing his explanations, without discussion, assuredly savours of tyranny. And thus, here again, a mean must be found to save the full rights of authority, on the one hand, and of liberty, on the other. In the meanwhile, the proper course for the Catholic will be to proclaim publicly his profound respect for authority, and continue to follow his own bent. Their general directions for the Church may be put in this way. Since the end of the Church is entirely spiritual, the religious authority should strip itself of all that external pomp which adorns it in the eyes of the public. And here they forget that while religion is essentially for the mind, it is not exclusively for the mind, and that the honour paid to authority is reflected back on Jesus Christ, who instituted it. THE EVOLUTION OF DOCTRINE To finish with this whole question of faith and its shoots, it remains to be seen, venerable brethren, what the modernists have to say about their development. First of all, they lay down the general principle that, in a living religion, everything is subject to change, and must in fact change. And in this way they pass to what may be said to be, among the chief of their doctrines, that of evolution. To the worship of evolution everything is subject. Dogma, church, worship, the books we revere as sacred, even faith itself, and the penalty of disobedience is death. The enunciation of this principle will not astonish anybody who bears in mind what the modernists have had to say about each of these subjects. Having laid down this law of evolution, the modernists themselves teach us how it works out. And first, with regard to faith. The primitive form of faith, they tell us, was rudimentary and common to all men alike, for it had its origin in human nature and human life. Vital evolution brought with it progress, not by the accretion of new and purely adventitious forms from without, but by an increasing penetration of the religious sentiment in the consciousness. 
This progress was of two kinds. Negative, by the elimination of all foreign elements, such, for example, as the sentiment of family or nationality, and positive, by that intellectual and moral refining of man, by means of which the idea of the divine was enlarged and enlightened, while the religious sentiment became more elevated and more intense. For the progress of faith no other causes are to be assigned than those which are adduced to explain its origin, but to them must be added those religious geniuses whom we call prophets, and of whom Christ was the greatest both because in their lives and their words there was something mysterious which faith attributed to the divinity, and because it fell to their lot to have new and original experiences fully in harmony with the needs of their time. The progress of dogma is due chiefly to the obstacles which faith has to surmount, to the enemies it has to vanquish, to the contradictions it has to repel. Add to this a perpetual striving to penetrate ever more profoundly its own mysteries. Thus, to omit other examples, as it happened in the case of Christ, in him that divine something which faith admitted in him expanded in such a way that he was at last held to be God. The chief stimulus of evolution in the domain of worship consists in the need of adapting itself to the uses and customs of peoples, as well as the need of availing itself of the value which certain acts have acquired by long usage. Finally, evolution in the church itself is fed by the need of accommodating itself to historical conditions and of harmonising itself with existing forms of society. Such is religious evolution in detail. And here, before proceeding further, we would have you note well this whole theory of necessities and needs, for it is at the root of the entire system of the modernists, and it is upon it that they will erect that famous method of theirs called the historical. Still continuing the consideration of the evolution of doctrine, it is to be noted that evolution is due, no doubt, to those stimulants styled needs, but if left to their action alone, it would run a great risk of bursting the bounds of tradition, and thus, turned aside from its primitive vital principle, would lead to ruin instead of progress. Hence, studying more closely the ideas of the modernists, evolution is described as resulting from the conflict of two forces, one of them tending towards progress, the other towards conservatism. The conserving force in the church is tradition, and tradition is represented by religious authority, and this both by right and in fact. For by right, it is in the very nature of authority to protect tradition, and in fact, for authority, raised as it is above the contingencies of life, feels hardly, or not at all, the spurs of progress. The progressive force, on the contrary, which responds to the inner needs lies in the individual consciences and ferments there, especially in such of them as are in most intimate contact with life. Note here, venerable brethren, the appearance already of that most pernicious doctrine which would make of the laity a factor of progress in the church. Now it is by a species of compromise between the forces of conservatism 
and of progress, that is to say, between authority and individual consciences, that changes and advances take place. The individual consciences of some of them act on the collective conscience, which brings pressure to bear on the depositories of authority, until the latter consent to a compromise, and, the pact being made, authority sees to its maintenance. With all this in mind, one understands how it is that the modernists express astonishment when they are reprimanded or punished. What is imputed to them as a fault, they regard as a sacred duty. The needs of consciences no one knows better than they, since they are in closer touch with them than even the ecclesiastical authority. Having a voice and a pen, they use both publicly, for this is their duty. Let authority rebuke them as much as it pleases. They have their own conscience on their side, and an intimate experience which tells them with certainty that what they deserve is not blame, but praise. Then they reflect that, after all, there is no progress without a battle, and no battle without its victim, and victims they are willing to be, like the prophets and Christ himself. They have no bitterness in their hearts against the authority which uses them roughly, for, after all, it is only doing its duty as authority. Their sole grief is that it remains deaf to their warnings, because delay multiplies the obstacles which impede the progress of souls. But the hour will most surely come when there will be no further chance for turgiversation, for if the laws of evolution may be checked for a while, they cannot be ultimately destroyed. And so they go their way, reprimands and condemnations notwithstanding, masking an incredible audacity under a mock semblance of humility. While they make a show of bowing their heads, their hands and minds are more intent than ever on carrying out their purposes. And this policy they follow willingly and wittingly, both because it is a part of their system that authority is to be stimulated but not dethroned, and because it is necessary for them to remain within the ranks of the church in order that they may, gradually, transform the collective conscience, thus unconsciously avowing that the common conscience is not with them, and that they have no right to claim to be its interpreters. Thus then, venerable brethren, for the modernists, both as authors and propagandists, there is to be nothing stable, nothing immutable in the church. Nor indeed are they without precursors in their doctrines, for it was of these that our predecessor, Pius IX, wrote, These enemies of divine revelation extolled human progress to the skies, and, with rash and sacrilegious daring, would have it introduced into the Catholic religion, as if this religion were not the work of God, but of man, or some kind of philosophical discovery susceptible of perfection by human efforts. On the subject of revelation, and dogma in particular, the doctrine of the modernists offers nothing new. We find it condemned in the syllabus of Pius IX, where it is enunciated in these terms. Divine revelation is imperfect, and therefore subject to continual and indefinite progress, corresponding with the progress of human reason, and condemned still more solemnly in the Vatican Council. The doctrine of the faith which God has revealed has not been proposed to human intelligences to be perfected by them 
as if it were a philosophical system, but as a divine deposit entrusted to the spouse of Christ to be faithfully guarded and infallibly interpreted. Hence the sense, too, of the sacred dogmas is that which our Holy Mother, the Church, has once declared, nor is this sense ever to be abandoned on plea or pretext of a more profound comprehension of the truth. Nor is the development of our knowledge, even concerning the faith, impeded by this pronouncement. On the contrary, it is aided and promoted. For the same counsel continues, Let intelligence and science and wisdom, therefore, increase and progress abundantly and vigorously in individuals, and in the mass, in the believer, and in the whole church, throughout the ages and the centuries, but only in its own kind, that is, according to the same dogma, the same sense, the same acceptation. The Modernist as Historian and Critic After having studied the Modernist as philosopher, believer, and theologian, it now remains for us to consider him as historian, critic, apologist, reformer. Some modernists, devoted to historical studies, seem to be greatly afraid of being taken for philosophers. About philosophy, they tell you, they know nothing whatever, and in this they display remarkable astuteness, for they are particularly anxious not to be suspected of being prejudiced in favour of philosophical theories, which would lay them open to the charge of not being objective, to use the word in vogue. And yet the truth is that their history and their criticism are saturated with their philosophy, and that their historico-critical conclusions are the natural fruit of their philosophical principles. This will be patent to anybody who reflects. Their first three laws are contained in those three principles of their philosophy already dealt with, the principle of agnosticism, the principle of the transfiguration of things by faith, and the principle which we have called of disfiguration. Let us see what consequences flow from each of them. Agnosticism tells us that history, like every other science, deals entirely with phenomena, and the consequence is that God, and every intervention of God in human affairs, is to be relegated to the domain of faith as belonging to it alone. In things where a double element, the divine and the human, mingles, in Christ, for example, or in the Church, or the sacraments, or the many other objects of the same kind, a division must be made, and the human element assigned to history, while the divine will go to faith. Hence we have that distinction, so current among the modernists, between the Christ of history and the Christ of faith, between the Church of history and the Church of faith, between the sacraments of history and the sacraments of faith, and so on. Next we find that the human element itself, which the historian has to work on, as it appears in the documents, has been, by faith, transfigured, that is to say, raised above its historical conditions. It becomes necessary, therefore, to eliminate also the accretions which faith has added, to assign them to faith itself and to the history of faith. Thus, when treating of Christ, the historian must set aside all that surpasses man in his natural condition, either according to the psychological conception of him, or 
according to the place and period of his existence. Finally, by virtue of the third principle, even those things which are not outside the sphere of history, they pass through the crucible, excluding from history and relegation to faith everything which, in their judgment, is not in harmony with what they call the logic of facts, and in character with the persons of whom they are predicated. Thus they will not allow that Christ ever uttered those things which do not seem to be within the capacity of the multitudes that listened to him. Hence they delete from his real history, and transfer to faith all the allegories found in his discourses. Do you inquire as to the criterion they adopt to enable them to make these divisions? The reply is that they argue from the character of the man, from his condition of life, from his education, from the circumstances under which the facts took place. In short, from criteria which, if one considers them well, are purely subjective. Their method is to put themselves into the position and person of Christ, and then to attribute to him what they would have done under like circumstances. In this way, absolutely a priori, and acting on philosophical principles, which they admit they hold, but which they affect to ignore, they proclaim that Christ, according to what they call his real history, was not God, and never did anything divine, and that as man he did and said only what they, judging from the time in which he lived, can admit him to have said or done. Criticism and its Principles And as history receives its conclusions, ready-made, from philosophy, so too criticism takes its own from history. The critic, on the data furnished him by the historian, makes two parts of all his documents. Those that remain after the triple elimination above described go to form the real history. The rest is attributed to the history of the faith, or, as it is styled, to internal history. For the modernists distinguish very carefully between these two kinds of history, and it is to be noted that they oppose the history of the faith to real history precisely as real. Thus we have a double Christ, a real Christ, and a Christ, the one of faith, who never really existed, a Christ who has lived at a given time and in a given place, and a Christ who has never lived outside the pious meditations of the believer, the Christ, for instance, whom we find in the Gospel of St. John, which is pure speculation from beginning to end. But the dominion of philosophy over history does not end here. Given that division, of which we have spoken, of the documents into two parts, the philosopher steps in again with his principle of vital immanence, and shows how everything in the history of the Church is to be explained by vital emanation. And since the cause, or condition, of every vital emanation whatsoever is to be found in some need, it follows that no fact can antedate the need which produced it. Historically, the fact must be posterior to the need. See how the historian works on this principle. He goes over his documents again, whether they be found in the sacred books or elsewhere, draws up from them his list of the successive needs of the church, whether relating to dogma or liturgy or other matters, and then he hands his list over to the critic. 
The critic takes in hand the documents dealing with the history of faith and distributes them, period by period, so that they correspond exactly with the list of needs, always guided by the principle that the narration must follow the facts, as the facts follow the needs. It may, at times, happen that some parts of the sacred scriptures, such as the epistles, themselves constitute the fact created by the need. Even so, the rule holds that the age of any document can only be determined by the age in which each need has manifested itself in the church. Further, a distinction must be made between the beginning of a fact and its development, for what is born on one day requires time for growth. Hence the critic must once more go over his documents, ranged as they are through the different ages, and divide them again into two parts, separating those that regard the first stage of the facts from those that deal with their development, and these he must again arrange according to their periods. Then the philosopher must come in again to impose on the historian the obligation of following, in all his studies, the precepts and laws of evolution. It is next for the historian to scrutinise his documents once more, to examine carefully the circumstances and conditions affecting the church during the different periods, the conserving force she has put forth, the needs, both internal and external, that have stimulated her to progress, the obstacles she has had to encounter. In a word, everything that helps to determine the manner in which the laws of evolution have been fulfilled in her. This done, he finishes his work by drawing up, in his broad lines, a history of the development of the facts. The critic follows, and fits in the rest of the document with this sketch. He takes up his pen, and soon the history is made complete. Now, we ask here, who is the author of this history? The historian? The critic? Assuredly, neither of these, but the philosopher. From beginning to end, everything in it is a priori, and a priori in a way that reeks of heresy. These men are certainly to be pitied, and of them the apostle might well say. They became vain in their thoughts. Professing themselves wise, they became fools. Letter to the Romans, chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. But, at the same time, they excite just indignation when they accuse the church of torturing the texts, arranging and confusing them after its own fashion and for the needs of its cause. In this they are accusing the church of something for which their own conscience plainly reproaches them. How the Bible is dealt with The result of this dismembering of the sacred books and this partition of them throughout the centuries is naturally that the scriptures can no longer be attributed to the authors whose names they bear. The modernists have no hesitation in affirming commonly that these books, and especially the Pentateuch and the first three Gospels, have been gradually formed by additions to a primitive brief narration, by interpolations of theological or allegorical interpretation, by transitions, by joining different passages together. This means, briefly, that in the sacred books we must admit a vital evolution, springing from and corresponding with the evolution of faith. 
The traces of this evolution, they tell us, are so visible in the books that one might almost write a history of them. Indeed, this history they do actually write, and with such an easy security that one might believe them to have, with their own eyes, seen the writers at work through the ages amplifying the sacred books. To aid them in this, they call to their assistance that branch of criticism which they call textual, and labour to show that such a fact, or such a phrase, is not in its right place, and adducing other arguments of the same kind. They seem, in fact, to have constructed for themselves certain type or narration and discourses, upon which they base their decision as to whether a thing is out of place or not. Judge, if you can, how men with such a system are fitted for practising this kind of criticism, to hear them talk about their works on the sacred books, in which they have been able to discover so much that is defective, one would imagine that before them no one ever even glanced through the pages of Scripture, whereas the truth is that a whole multitude of doctors, infinitely superior to them in genius, in erudition, in sanctity, have sifted the sacred books in every way, and so far from finding imperfections in them, have thanked God more and more the deeper they have gone into them, for his divine bounty in having vouchsafed to speak thus to men. Unfortunately, these great doctors did not enjoy the same aids to study that are possessed by the modernists for their guide and rule, a philosophy borrowed from the negation of God and a criterion which consists of themselves. We believe, then, that we have set forth, with sufficient clearness, the historical methods of the modernists. The philosopher leads the way, the historian follows, and then, in due order, come internal and textual criticism. And since it is characteristic of the first cause to communicate its virtue to secondary causes, it is quite clear that the criticism we are concerned with is an agnostic, immanentist, and evolutionist criticism. Hence, anybody who embraces it and employs it makes profession thereby of the errors contained in it, and places himself in opposition to Catholic faith. This being so, one cannot but be greatly surprised by the consideration which is attached to it by certain Catholics. Two causes may be assigned for this. First, the close alliance, independent of all differences of nationality or religion, which the historians and critics of this school have formed among themselves, Second, the boundless effrontery of these men. Let one of them but open his mouth, and the others applaud him in chorus, proclaiming that science has made another step forward. Let an outsider but hint at a desire to inspect the new discovery with his own eyes, and they are on him in a body. Deny it, and you are an ignoramus. Embrace it and defend it, and there is no praise too warm for you. In this way they win over many who, did they but realise what they are doing, would shrink back with horror. The impudence and the domineering of some, and the thoughtlessness and imprudence of others, have combined to generate a pestilence in the air which penetrates everywhere and spreads the contagion. But let us pass to the apologist. The modernist as apologist. 
the modernist apologist depends in two ways on the philosopher first indirectly inasmuch as his theme is history history dictated as we have seen by the philosopher and second directly inasmuch as he takes both his laws and his principles from the philosopher hence that common precept of the modernist school that the new apologetics must be fed from psychological and historical sources the modernist apologists then enter the arena by proclaiming to the rationalists that though they are defending religion they have no intention of employing the data of the sacred books or the histories in current use in the church and composed according to old methods but real history written on modern principles and according to rigorously modern methods in all this they are not using an argumentum ad hominem but are stating the simple fact that they hold that the truth is to be found only in this kind of history they feel that it is not necessary for them to dwell on their own sincerity in their writings they are already known to and praised by the rationalists as fighting under the same banner and they not only plume themselves on these encomiums which are a kind of salary to them but would only provoke nausea in a real catholic but use them as an offset to the reprimands of the church but let us see how the modernist conducts his apologetics the aim he sets before him is to make the non-believer attain that experience of the catholic religion which according to the system is the basis of faith there are two ways open to him the objective and the subjective the first of them proceeds from agnosticism it tends to show that religion and especially the catholic religion is endowed with such vitality as to compel every psychologist and historian of good faith to recognize that its history hides some unknown element to this end it is necessary to prove that this religion as it exists today is that which was founded by jesus christ that is to say that it is the product of the progressive development of the germ which he brought into the world hence it is imperative first of all to establish what this germ was and this the modernist claims to be able to do by the following formula christ announced the coming of the kingdom of god which was to be realized within a brief lapse of time and of which he was to become the messiah the divinely given agent and ordainer then it must be shown how this germ always imminent and permanent in the bosom of the church has gone on slowly developing in the course of history adapting itself successively to the different mediums through which it has passed borrowing from them by vital assimilation all the dogmatic cultural ecclesiastical forms that served its purpose whilst on the other hand it surmounted all obstacles vanquished all enemies and survived all assaults and all combats anybody who well and duly considers this mass of obstacles adversaries attacks combats and the vitality and fecundity which the church has shown throughout them all must admit that if the laws of evolution are visible in her life they fail to explain the whole of her history the unknown rises forth from it and presents itself before us thus do they argue never suspecting that their determination of the primitive germ is an a priori of agnostic and evolutionist philosophy and that the formula of it 
has been gratuitously invented for the sake of buttressing their position. But while they endeavour, by this line of reasoning, to secure access for the Catholic religion into souls, these new apologists are quite ready to admit that there are many distasteful things in it. Nay, they admit openly, and with ill-concealed satisfaction, that they have found that even its dogma is not exempt from errors and contradictions. They add also that this is not only excusable, but, curiously enough, even right and proper. In the sacred books there are many passages referring to science or history where manifest errors are to be found. But the subject of these books is not science or history, but religion and morals. In them history and science serve only as a species of covering to enable the religious and moral experiences wrapped up in them to penetrate more readily among the masses. The masses understood science and history as they are expressed in these books, and it is clear that had science and history been expressed in a more perfect form, this would have proved rather a hindrance than a help. Then, again, the sacred books, being essentially religious, are consequently necessarily living. Now life has its own truth and its own logic, quite different from rational truth and rational logic, belonging, as they do, to a different order, that is, truth of adaptation and of proportion both with the medium in which it exists and with the end towards which it tends. Finally, the modernists, losing all sense of control, go so far as to proclaim as true and legitimate everything that is explained by life. We, venerable brethren, for whom there is but one and only truth, and who hold that the sacred books, written under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, have God for their author, dogmatic constitution on the Catholic faith, of Revelation, Canon 2, declare that this is equivalent to attributing to God himself the lie of utility or officious lie. And we say, with St. Augustine, in an authority so high, admit but one officious lie, and there will not remain a single passage of those apparently difficult to practice or to believe, which, on the same most pernicious rule, may not be explained as a lie uttered by the author willfully and to serve a purpose. Epistle 28 And thus it will come about, the holy doctor continues, that everybody will believe, and refuse to believe, what he likes or dislikes. But the modernists pursue their way gaily. They grant also that certain arguments adduced in the sacred books, like those, for example, which are based on the prophecies, have no rational foundation to rest on. But they will defend even these as artifices of preaching, which are justified by life. Do they stop here? No, indeed, for they are ready to admit, nay, to proclaim, that Christ himself manifestly erred in determining the time when the coming of the kingdom of God was to take place. And they tell us that we must not be surprised at this, since even Christ was subject to the laws of life. After this, what is to become of the dogmas of the church? The dogmas brim over with flagrant contradictions, but what matter that, since apart from the fact that vital logic accepts them, they are not repugnant to symbolical truth. Are we not dealing with the infinite, and has not the infinite an infinite variety of aspects? In short, 
to maintain and defend these theories, they do not hesitate to declare that the noblest homage that can be paid to the infinite is to make it the object of contradictory propositions. But when they justify even contradictions, what is it that they will refuse to justify? Subjective Arguments But it is not solely by objective arguments that the non-believer may be disposed to faith. There are also subjective ones at the disposal of the modernists, and for those they return to their doctrine of imminence. They endeavour, in fact, to persuade their non-believer that down in the very deeps of his nature and his life lie the need and the desire for religion, and this, not a religion of any kind, but the specific religion known as Catholicism, which, they say, is absolutely postulated by the perfect development of life. And here we cannot but deplore once more, and grievously, that there are Catholics who, while rejecting imminence as a doctrine, employ it as a method of apologetics, and who do this so imprudently that they seem to admit that there is, in human nature, a true and rigorous necessity with regard to the supernatural order, and not merely a capacity and a suitability for the supernatural, such as has at all times been emphasised by Catholic apologists. Truth to tell, it is only the moderate modernists who make this appeal to an exigency for the Catholic religion. As for the others, who might be called integralists, they would show to the non-believer, hidden away in the very depths of his being, the very germ which Christ himself bore in his conscience, and which he bequeathed to the world. Such, venerable brethren, is a summary description of the apologetic method of the modernists, in perfect harmony, as you may see, with their doctrines. Methods and doctrines brimming over with errors, made not for edification, but for destruction, not for the formation of Catholics, but for the plunging of Catholics into heresy, methods and doctrines that would be fatal to any religion. The Modernist as Reformer It remains for us now to say a few words about the Modernist as Reformer. From all that has preceded, some idea may be gained of the reforming mania which possesses them. In all Catholicism there is absolutely nothing upon which it does not fasten. Reformer philosophy, especially in the seminaries. The scholastic philosophy is to be relegated to the history of philosophy among obsolete systems, and the young men are to be taught modern philosophy, which alone is true and suited to the times in which we live. Reform of theology. Rational theology is to have modern philosophy for its foundation, and positive theology is to be founded on the history of dogma. As for history, it must be, for the future, written and taught only according to their modern methods and principles. Dogmas and their evolution are to be harmonised with science and history. In the Catechism, no dogmas are to be inserted except those that have been duly reformed and are within the capacity of the people. Regarding worship, the number of external devotions is to be reduced, or at least steps must be taken to prevent their further increase, though indeed some of the admirers of symbolism are disposed to be more indulgent on this head. Ecclesiastical government requires to be reformed in all its branches, but especially 
in its disciplinary and dogmatic parts. Its spirit and its external manifestations must be put in harmony with the public conscience, which is now wholly for democracy. A share in ecclesiastical government should, therefore, be given to the lower ranks of the clergy, and even to the laity, and authority should be decentralised. The Roman congregations, and especially the index and the holy office, are to be reformed. The ecclesiastical authority must change its line of conduct in the social and political world. While keeping outside political and social organisation, it must adapt itself to those which exist in order to penetrate them with its spirit. With regard to morals, they adopt the principle of the Americanists, that the active virtues are more important than the passive, both in the estimation in which they must be held and in the exercise of them. The clergy are asked to return to the ancient lowliness and poverty, and in their ideas and action are to be guided by the principles of modernism. And there are some who, echoing the teaching of their Protestant masters, would like the suppression of ecclesiastical celibacy. What is there left in the church which is not to be reformed according to their principles? Modernism and all the heresies. It may be, venerable brethren, that some may think we have dwelt too long on this exposition of the doctrines of the modernists. But it was necessary, both in order to refute their customary charge, that we do not understand their ideas, and to show that their system does not consist in scattered and unconnected theories, but in a perfectly organised body, all the parts of which are solidly joined, so that it is not possible to admit one without admitting all. For this reason, too, we have had to give this exposition a somewhat didactic form, and not to shrink from employing certain uncouth terms in use among the modernists. And now, can anybody who takes a survey of the whole system be surprised that we should define it as the synthesis of all heresies? Were one to attempt the task of collecting together all the errors that have been broached against the faith, and to concentrate the sap and substance of them all into one, he could not better succeed than the modernists have done. Nay, they have done more than this, for, as we have already intimated, their system means the destruction, not of the Catholic religion alone, but of all religion. With good reason do the rationalists applaud them, for the most sincere and the frankest among the rationalists warmly welcome the modernists as their most valuable allies. For let us return, for a moment, venerable brethren, to that most disastrous doctrine of agnosticism. By it, every avenue that leads the intellect to God is barred, but the modernist would seek to open others available for sentiment and action. Vain efforts. For, after all, what is sentiment but the reaction of the soul on the action of the intelligence or the senses? Take away the intelligence, and man, already inclined to follow the senses, becomes their slave. Vain, too, from another point of view, for all these fantasies on the religious sentiment will never be able to destroy common sense. And common sense tells us that emotion and everything that leads the heart captive proves a hindrance instead of a help to the discovery of truth. We speak, of course, of truth in itself. As for that other purely subjective truth, 
the fruit of sentiment and action, if it serves its purpose for the jugglery of words, it is of no use to the man who wants to know, above all things, whether, outside himself, there is a God into whose hands he is one day to fall. True, the modernists do call in experience to eke out their system, but what does this experience add to sentiment? Absolutely nothing, beyond a certain intensity and a proportionate deepening of the conviction of the reality of the object. But these two will never make sentiment into anything but sentiment, nor deprive it of its characteristic, which is to cause deception when the intelligence is not there to guide it. On the contrary, they but confirm and aggravate this characteristic, for the more intense sentiment is, the more it is sentimental. In matters of religious sentiment and religious experience, you know, venerable brethren, how necessary is prudence, and how necessary, too, the science which directs prudence. You know it from your own dealings with souls, and especially with souls in whom sentiment predominates. You know it also from your reading of ascetical books, books which the modernists have but little esteem, but which testify to a science and a solidity very different from theirs, and to a refinement and subtlety of observation of which the modernists give no evidence. Is it not really folly, or at least sovereign imprudence, to trust oneself, without control, to modernist experiences? Let us for a moment put the question. If experiences have so much value in their eyes, why do they not attach equal weight to the experience that thousands upon thousands of Catholics have that the modernists are on the wrong road? Is it, perchance, that all experiences, except those felt by the modernists, are false and deceptive? The vast majority of mankind holds, and always will hold firmly, that sentiment and experience alone, when not enlightened and guided by reason, do not lead to the knowledge of God. What remains, then, but the annihilation of all religion? Atheism. Certainly it is not the doctrine of symbolism will save us from this. For if all the intellectual elements, as they call them, of religion, are pure symbols, will not the very name of God, or a divine personality, be also a symbol? And if this be admitted, will not the personality of God become a matter of doubt, and the way opened to pantheism? And to pantheism, that other doctrine of divine immanence leads directly. For does it, we ask, leave God distinct from man, or not? If yes, in what way does it differ from Catholic doctrine, and why reject external revelation? If no, we are at once in pantheism. Now, the doctrine of immanence, in the modernist exception, holds and professes that every phenomenon of conscience proceeds from man as man. The rigorous conclusion from this is the identity of man with God, which means pantheism. The same conclusion follows from the distinction modernists make between science and faith. The object of science, they say, is the reality of the knowable. The object of faith, on the contrary, is the reality of the unknowable. Now, what makes the unknowable unknowable is its disproportion with the intelligible, a disproportion which nothing whatever, even in the doctrine of the modernist, can suppress. 
hence the unknowable remains and will eternally remain unknowable to the believer as well as to the man of science therefore if any religion at all is possible it can only be the religion of an unknowable reality and why this religion might not be that universal soul of the universe of which a rationalist speaks is something we do not see certainly this suffices to show superabundantly by how many roads modernism leads to the annihilation of all religion the first step in this direction was taken by protestantism the second is made by modernism the next will plunge headlong into atheism end of part two of encyclical letter Pescendi dominici gregis on the errors of the modernists 